0: Welcome to the New
2: Books Network.
0: Hello, world. This is the Global Media and Communication podcast series. I am Aswin Punathambaker, the director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication.
2: This is Jing Wang, the senior research manager at CARC.
0: Our podcast is part of a multimodal project powered by CARG here at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: At CARG, we produce and promote critical, interdisciplinary, and multimodal research on global media and communication. We aim to bridge academic scholarship and public life, bringing the very best scholarship to bear on enduring global questions and pressing contemporary issues.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Global Media and Communication Podcast, sponsored by the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communications at the University of Pennsylvania. My name is Juan Yamas Rodriguez, and I'm an assistant professor in the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Today, I am joined by Professors Lily Kouyaraki and Miria Georgiou, the authors of The Digital Border Migration Technology Power. Professor Kuliraki is chair in Media Communications in the Department of Media Communications at the London School of Economics. She currently sits at the board of LSE's Women, Peace and Security Center, as well as the Marshall Institute for Philanthropy and Social Entrepreneurship. She has been a visiting professor at a number of universities, and her work has been translated in Portuguese, Polish, Danish, Greek, Italian, French, and Chinese. Professor Georgius is professor in the Department of Media and Communications, also at the London School of Economics. Um, She has worked as a consultant for a number of regional and international organizations, um, including the Council of Europe, um, and a number of different projects. She is the author and editor for books and more than 60 peer-reviewed publications, and her work has been published in English, French, Portuguese, Spanish, and Greek. Um, So, welcome. Thank Thank you. So, the book that we are discussing today is um, The Digital Border, Migration, Technology and Power. Um, And if you could briefly describe in your own words um, what the digital border is about, um, its importance and its implications.
1: Um, Yes, yes, I'll I'll do that. Um, So, I'll I'll try to do so in in three points. Um, The first point refers to what the digital border is. Um, So the idea of the digital border um, tries to capture the current reality of a much older process, the process of dividing spaces in inside-outside and of controlling the movement of people between um, this inside-outside so as to create communities of belonging and their excluded others. Um, and where the inside, in our case, um, is uh, spaces of national sovereignty, the nation state, and the outside is a neighboring nation states, often liminal spaces uh, where migrants um, do not belong, but they cannot live either within the current geopolitical order and its rules of mobility. So we argue that today, this old process of dividing spaces in insides outsides uh, and circumscribing nations, states in this way, um, is thoroughly digitized and datafied. Um, that is, um, it is more technologically integrated, connected, and dispersed across space and time. So this is the first point: what the digital border kind of tries to capture. Mm -hmm. Um, The second point then is that precisely because of this integration and dispersion of of control that occurs under conditions of connectivity and datafication, the uh, separation of migrants uh, in that space of inside-outside does not start or stop at a specific point let's say, the entry point of the outer border where passport controls take place. Rather, we show that the digital border is everywhere around us. It's definitely at the outer territories of the nation state, but it also exists within uh, the nation states where the migrants enter, move, settle and live. And we call this the territorial border. But beyond the territorial border, we also argue that the border is everywhere where stories and images about migrants and by migrants circulate and inform our collective conversations about migration. What it is, uh, who migrants are, what they do, and what we do or we should do um, with migration. And we call these... um, Uh, processes of separation around the narratives about um, and of migration, the symbolic border. Mm -hmm. So these two, the territorial border and the symbolic border, are, if you like, the two building blocks of our analysis. Mm -hmm. Um, So to sum up the second point, the digital border is materialized through every technology practice uh, uh, and discourse that does the work of establishing inside, outsides, whether these are biometric measurements, surveillance cameras, databases that are kept, for instance, in job centers or in medical centers, in the new communities where migrants arrive. But at the same time, uh, the digital border is in news uh, reports about migration, the photojournalism of migration, uh, on social media posts and websites and videos where migrants or other actors, like for instance NGOs, tell stories about migration, etc, etc. So that is the second point I wanted to make about um, the dimensions of the digital border and how it works. And finally, the third point is to say that even though we separate those two dimensions in our analysis, the territorial and the symbolic border, we also use the term assemblage, um, the border we say as a techno-symbolic assemblage, so as to capture how all of these processes of, say, surveillance cameras and news narratives or biometric measurements and and ngo practices come together at specific times and places to create separations and classifications of migrants uh, whether these are to restrict their bodies in space or to vilify and dehumanize them um, in the news Um, and the final point uh, as part of my kind of third argument on the digital border, is to say that um, at the same time, and because exactly of that complexity, the digital border is not only an assemblage of um, control, but also a space of resistance, and that is important for us in the book. So it is a space of cracks in the system of opportunities of action, where migrants and other actors find spaces of freedom uh, self-expression creativity and protest activism and so this focus on resistance together with our grasp of the border as diffused and historically mutate, mutating assemblage of platforms with narratives are Um, uh, we think at least, um, uh, the two most generative dimensions of our theory of the digital border in in the book.
0: Yeah, it's it's certainly a a very ambitious book, and how it is trying to bring together all these different concepts, um, as well, and find both the interconnections between the territorial and the symbolic border, and also find the sort of notes of resistance within that um, assemblage as well. Um, and in some ways it builds a lot on the previous work that both of you individually have done, right? And together. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, um, how sort of previous work that you've done maybe helped build the foundations for, um, for this book and then how does it ex- expand or extend it?
2: Yes, um, I, I think I can start and uh, Lily, I'm sure, will come in. Um, th- this uh, was definitely an uh, innovative and challenging piece of work for both of us. Um, and it invited us to think about migration borders and power in new ways. But in different ways, it has built, as you, as you guessed uh, 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 yourself, Juan, it has built on um, our own previous work. And the different work that we have done individually in the past so for me this book builds on my own long interest in migration in the media and this is an area of research that has primarily um, uh, informed my research um, um, my research practice over the last two decades or more. And this is seen, uh, for example, in my, uh, uh, my first book titled Diaspora Identity and the Media, a second edited book uh, published a few years later uh, titled Gender Migration and the Media, and more recently in the Sage Handbook of Media and Migration, which I co-edited with dear colleagues uh, Kevin Smet, Kunlers, Saskia Vitterborn, and Radika Kadala. In terms of substance, of course, and through this collaboration that uh, became very inspiring and offer challenging for both of us in a productive way, the digital border expanded my research in two ways, at least. Um, First, um, in this book, by investigating how the current moment of political polarization, intense conflicts and environmental catastrophes around the world become framed in relation to human mobility has been uh, uh, an empirical reality that we tried to understand, uh, investigate and explain uh, through this book. So migration at the moment has become elevated into a major problem But most importantly, it has been framed not so much as a problem for the people who move or who have to move, but primarily as a problem for the Western societies that face their mobility. Thus, this book allowed us to explore the imaginaries of crisis, as we write in the book as well, but specifically the imaginaries of crisis that have to do with the current moment, but also as these are formed in their colonial ideological heritage, but also in their contestation and resistance, as uh, Lily just mentioned, that has to do both with the the, the colonial uh, um, heritage, but of course, uh, uh, the resistance to it. The second point is that this book and the moment in which we wrote it allowed allowed us both, I think, to build insight on the multi-nodal and on the multi-sided but also contradictory con- uh, constitution of the border. And the different constitutions of the border by the different actors of the border. So we had the opportunity together and separately in our different research projects to engage with different actors of the border and these. Are um, as we discuss in the book, migrants, state authorities, international actors, activists, volunteers, and citizens, but also media makers. So in this way, that our combined work enabled us to uh, t- to speak with, and uh, and to observe how these different actors from the border, we were able, I think, in a unique way to develop um, that a deeper understanding of how the border is symbolically and territorially shaped, both as a system of control, but also as a system, as we know, and as we have seen in our engagement with all these different actors, that it can never fully control people's lives and agency. So we have seen, and we try to communicate that in the book, that the border is a repressive regime, but also the border generates resistance and difference.
1: Um, yeah, so, um, I mean, I have a different trajectory than, uh, than Myria does, but it has been a really um, great occasion that we came together to uh, think together and write together on the digital border. So, um, um, I come from a space within our discipline of media and communication, uh, media and communications, where I see myself as basically a scholar of mediated vulnerability. So I'm interested in human suffering as a problem of communication, primarily. So my previous work in the spectatorship of suffering, uh, the humanitarian spectator, and um, the uh, you know the handbook of humanitarian communication, etc., etc., and 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 also in a number of articles on war reporting, um, digital war reporting, uh, I, all these pieces of work have always returned to the same questions of how do we Um, represent bodies in pain um, on paper and on screen? Um, What are the histories of these mediations? And what are the debates around them? So what are really the implications of mediating suffering for those who suffer themselves and for those who witness their pain uh, from a certain distance? So for me, the book falls within this broader problematic of migration as among many other things, a form of mass suffering, of mediated suffering. Uh, Now, you know, working with Miria and what she brought into into the table of that collaboration uh, really opened my eyes and complicated (coughs) my own way of thinking um, so that we could together kind of push ourselves and um, ask the bigger questions of what the digital border actually is and what it does. Um, in the current moment, excuse me. Um, this means that even though my own entry point was migrant representations with the media, the project in its entirety got me going with a deeper exploration of migration, not just as representation, as discourse, as what we might call symbolic power, but as an intersection of the symbolic with other forms of power, like geopolitics, biopolitics, and uh, necropolitics, necropolitical power.
0: Yeah, I think it's really um, it's reflected in the even the structure of the book and the way you tackle the different topics. How you're both coming from a different perspective, but with shared interests, um, and how that shapes your your analysis of it. Um, I think Lily, you started to mention this a little bit. Um, could either of you talk about the process of co-writing this book, um, as both the as I guess the like the nitty-gritty of, of writing a book with another person, um, and also how that process was you know fruitful for thinking through the ideas as well. Um,
1: yeah, I mean. Um... I mean, I would start by saying, you know, the good thing about that collaboration is that Miriam and I, even though we research, you know, different, obviously, you know, different in different areas and think differently, we are nonetheless uh, converged in that we are both dialectical thinkers. So this means that um, we grasp the realities of migration, both as, you know, phenomena of the here and now, you know, historical phenomena, um, that happened in a specific context, um, and the context of our shared fieldwork was um, um, the Greek islands, uh, one particular Greek island, Hios, during uh, the migration event of 2015, and then eventually Miria took it further to researching the next five years up to 2020. Uh, but uh, so we are able to be able to kind of focus on the kind of historical context. But together with this context, at the same time, we approach the realities of migration also as theoretical challenges. For instance, you know, we ask questions about how security regimes work in global governance or about how migrant representations enact ambivalent migrant identities between victimhood and threat, or how dominant narrative narratives of migration work as imaginaries. Um, so in our analysis and theorizing, we keep these two, you know, the empirical, the historical and the theoretical in constant tension. And I think uh, we, we, we kind of, we, we can both uh, do that and we both enjoy doing that. That's the way we think and, and write. So we do not uh, impose theoretical frameworks on the data from the start, but nor do we take for granted what our first contact with the empirical material tells us. Um, so, we keep this tension uh, between data and theory uh, going throughout. Um, and to do that, we employ a range of methods in, 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 in the work. So, from ethnographic observations to interviews to discourse analysis to content analysis, um, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these helped us revisit the same big questions of the book from different but related and complementary perspectives. Um, so I would say that it was precisely this back and forth between the granular and the grand, if you like, the overarching um, that held our assumptions and claims in checks as we went along. along. And we, it kept the conversation between us as we looked at different parts of this research going throughout up to the last day, really, of the, of the writing up. Um, I think also, you know, that kind of conversation uh, helped us establish the bigger patterns of our narrative. You know, when we talk about the assemblage as a technological and symbolic and as a, as a point of articulation for the two, that came out of that kind of um, dialectical uh, thinking and the conversations between us. The, se- the same with um, agency and, um, and subjection, right, or resistance and control or constancy, how borders always control, as Mirja just said, and at the same time change. Yes, they do control, but how do they control now and how do they control in different contexts? So all of these things came out of uh, conversations between you know, the small and the big, you know, the theory and the empirical, and what we were kind of contributing um, as individual researchers in a common project.
0: Great. Um, okay, so let's get into some of the, the key concepts um, and uh, some of the material that you work with in, in the book. So one other thing I noticed as, you're, as I was reading through the different chapters is um, that you sort of focus on specific types of media um, to, do, to do this analysis. Um, social media sites um, and then journalism, both written journalism but also um, photojournalism. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about the decision to choose these type of, to focus on these type of media, um, both like what are they bringing to the analysis of the digital border that you that you are uh, putting together, and in contrast to the, all the different other types of media that there are out there? Um, so why focus your your study on on these?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, let me uh, let me, Miriam, shall I start? So shall I just say something about journalism, just to begin with? Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll speak about journalism, um, which is primarily taking place on online today. You know, on any screen that we happen to be scrolling down and, and kind of watching news from. Um, and, and we thought that journalism uh, that actually takes on. Uh, you know, two of the three chapters of the symbolic border uh, is important because it still is one of the main gateways we have as, 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 uh, as uh, publics located in European nation states, you know, or, or US or the US or, or you know, uh, wherever we are in the global north to get in touch with world events that do not happen in our doorsteps that require mediation to be known and more than known to be meaningful to us, to become meaningful to us. Um, So our our starting point there was precisely that news reporting is a key resource for us to be able to understand um, specific migration events, but also to understand migration as a condition of our times um, more generally. So at the same time, however, we argue that these same resources of understanding already carry with them charged meanings, meanings that are used to reproduce power relations. In this case, in the case of migration, you know, are uh, colonial power relations and stereotypes that harm migrants. Um, um, in what sense does this harm take place? Uh, so what we are kind of uh, uh, showing throughout the uh, uh chapters of the, of the symbolic Buddha is that very often um, news discourse harms migrants uh, through its use of binaries, and binaries is an important concept in our analysis. And there is, of course, already substantial research which shows how harmful it is um, to only use two opposing labels in order to describe time and again who migrants are. And these are the labels of the victim and, and, the, and, and the threat. So migrants as victims are shown as powerless and inactive without, you know, agency. And migrants as threats are shown as dangerous to us, either in terms of, you know, um, threatening our cultural coherence or in terms of security, there are terrorists, rapes, rapists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so just to give you an example, perhaps from the book, Uh, In the book, we show how, depending on the broader context, these binaries changed and alternated in time, but eventually kept migrants trapped in a very restricted range of representations. And our time frame was, uh, you know, June, December 2015, you know, during the kind of peak of that migration event in Europe. So early on in the time frame, let's say early summer two thousand fifteen, news representations of migrants adopted an approach of cautious or watchful tolerance. So, with migrants being represented largely as victims who escape war and persecution, and we were kind of waiting to see how this is going to unfold. By September two thousand and fifteen, and following um, the photograph. Uh, of Alan Kurdi, a three-year-old boy found drowned on a Turkish shore. This reluctance turned into what in the book we call ecstatic humanitarianism, an unprecedented wave of compassion and a spike in activism um, in favor of, of the arriving migrants. Two months later, in November 2015, when the Paris terror attacks took place, This humanitarian peak was overnight replaced by suspicion and hostility. So migrants became, just like that, a source of terrorism that should be stopped from reaching Europe. So four months later, the EU borders closed and those who had already arrived were trapped uh, in Greece. So what does this enactment of the binary show us? It shows us that binaries are not just labels, as I called them earlier, they're also instruments of power. They are linguistic acts of bordering that position migrants in flexible but very restricted ways, either as pitiful victims that need to be rescued or as dangerous terrorists that we need to keep out. In both cases, these binaries place migrants outside the boundary of uh, what we consider um, humanity, being a human, um, a human entity, a human being. So whether they are called victims or threats, migrants in European news discourse were systematically orientalized in that sense, classified as less than human and as others to us. And ultimately, what is missing from this binary construction of migrants is uh, complexity. Complexity in their identities, depth in their emotions, richness in their experiences. We do not see them as individuals with their own histories, biographies, aspirations. Uh, They are presented as as hollow, one-sided figures. And from there, it becomes very easy, we argue, for for us, as as um, as kind of uh, spectators or readers of these binary descriptions, to ignore them, to be indifferent to them, to vilify them, or even to hate them.
2: Um. Perhaps I can uh, come in and and say um, uh, something in addition to um, the uh, the outline that uh, Lily explained in our framing and in our findings of research, especially around the binaries and how these are constructed. In media narratives. Um, So uh, I think our choice of media um, uh, that we studied, which includes both social media and and mainstream media uh, through our focus on journalism, um, reflects also the reality of our mediascapes, uh, the contemporary mediascapes. So ironically, even though we see repeatedly those those binaries in terms of representation of minorities, we can not see clear binaries when it comes to different media, uh, uh, to uh, different media spaces. So we constantly found out that even if we focus on narratives produced in mainstream media and in mainstream journalism, these are the same narratives that are circulated also on social media. So we have this constant constant process of intermediation and very often it is difficult to separate the the spaces where meanings, uh, not, not only where representations uh, of migration appear, but where the meaning-making processes around those representations take uh, space. So um, instead of thinking of media spaces as separated and thinking about mainstream media as something distinct to social media, we actually tried to capture this uh, complex um, uh, architecture, um, communicative architecture of the border and the flows that move between different media spaces. Um, and the other point to make here is that w- one of the important epistemological uh, points of departure for us in thinking about the media that we analyze and the ways that we approach them is that it was very important to us not to think about media as separated spaces as, uh, to those of action um, and practice. So as much as we looked at the media and what is um, uh, visible in media representations, it was important for us also to look at the actors, the communicative actors um, of the border. And this, of course, again, included a range of actors and the way that they develop both the, uh, the narratives, but also the meanings of what um, is produced and represented in the media. And this, of course, includes anything from journalism all the way to migrants themselves.
0: Right. right. Yeah, I think... As you mentioned, the the different binaries um, and the change between these different binaries in the in the time period that you analyze is really important to um, to trace, and it's interesting to see it, these replicated across different types of media um, as well. Um, when you were mentioning the the sort of initial forms of maybe sort of humanitarianism that then very quickly became to um, to viewing migrants as as threats uh, and the change in that. You also talk about um, a sort of different ways of then, in that change, the securitization of the border, right? Um, and the, the hardening of different practices. Um, and in, in the book, you make this differentiation between the sort of humanitarian securitization and you trace the emergence of an entrepreneurial securitization as a sort of another layer of the digital border, um, an interesting one that migrants face once within, once they're inside the internal borders of Europe, right? Um, so, can you tell us a little bit more about what you, what you've seen theorize the elements of this form of securitization um, and sort of different strategies for navigating it that that you found? Uh,
2: perhaps I could uh, I, I could start and. Uh, um, well, Perhaps this um, articulation of that concept of entrepreneurial securitization is one of the uh, important contributions of the book, hopefully. Um, And uh, finding that is quite new, we feel, within the field of critical migration studies um, and also digital uh, migration studies. So um, the framework of humanitarian securitization that Lily spoke to already is a framework that divides migrants within those close uh, categories of the victim or the perpetrator. And um, we see uh, historically and more recently in critical migration studies and digital migration studies, as well um, other scholars um, are finding those patterns of representation. For example, uh, uh, Lisa Malki already um, in 1996 she was talking about that performance that refugees in different parts of of the world have to put up um, as as victims as um, as the only way that they can escape their categorization as um, as criminals and the only way to get access to rights was to perform that role of the victim. Um, So um, unfortunately we've seen those patterns that have been recognized historically in other contexts of crisis and uh, uh, in other historical moments being reproduced in the West and in the way that the Western Western, uh, uh, media um uh, uh, media presentations f- frame uh, frame migration. what was interesting for us, and this relates to the opportunity that we had to do research over the period of five years, was that at that context of crisis we saw repeatedly, the construction of migrants through that framework of humanitarian securitization, thus people are either uh, victims or perpetrators. But we were wondering and we went on to explore what happens once migrants move from that moment of crisis and move away from that initial territorial space of the outer border of Europe, of the West? What happens when these people actually enter societies? And what we found out is that we see a rearticulation of the binary. So we see the persistence of frameworks of securitization that very often and continuously produce and reproduce the migrants as threats, or as perpetrators, especially around narratives that uh, of suspicion against uh, migrants, for example, as terrorists. And many migrants, of course, who live within the West are constantly uh, monitored and surveyed because they're considered as a threat to national security. We see that a uh, narrative of uh, securitization also expanding to the threat to societies expressed around uh, the morality of, of the migrants as not very often not considered as moral subjects like us, in quotation marks, the threat, of course, this idea that they're here to take our jobs, right? So we see that continuity of the securitization narrative. But what we also see that is interesting is that that humanitarian narrative of the victim becomes transformed within those neoliberal economies of subject-making within Western societies, So, uh, what we found uh, through our research in European cities, where many migrants settle, is that the expectations from migrants is not one of constantly performing the victim, because, of course, as we know, uh, the Western state... um, Uh, becomes more suspicious towards the victim, quotations, when that victim needs care, care that the state is more reluctant, reluctant to offer. And we see the transformation from the victim to the entrepreneurial subject. So what the expectation more and more becomes for migrants to be accepted and recognized and having access to territory and to resources is for them to perform that role of the entrepreneurial subject which means that they have to demonstrate and show that they're self-sufficient, they're resilient, and against the odds, they can succeed in in the Western societies. But of course, they can succeed within those terms that are already pre-given to them the rules of the market, the rules um, of a state that is more and more reluctant to offer support to these people. So what we found out in European cities is that many, many migrants live within this impossible uh, imperative, that impossible position, that they become more and more aware that unless they perform that uh, role of their resilient subject, either they will be considered as a threat or their, uh, their, recogni- their recognition that they might enjoy temporarily will be withdrawn, and, um, and eventually they are going to be expelled and deported and sent back to the territories where they came from, which of course, as we know in many, many cases, these are very dangerous and precarious uh, territories and conditions.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
0: Yeah, I think, um, as I mentioned, I think it is one of the big contributions of the book to think about this different um, dynamic, I think, in generally, part of the um, larger argument that you're making is the digital border isn't only at the border, right? Isn't only at the line. So we see these dynamics continuing even inside in the "quote unquote" inside of the the European nations where where migrants relocate, right? So a lot of so you actually had multiple years of of, of research. And the, the sort of um, main focus of, as you mentioned, was the, the major migration event of 2015 uh, of migrants coming into Europe, which in a lot of media um, discourse has sort of been dubbed as a crisis, right, a, a refugee crisis, uh, in, in sort of quotes. But in your analysis of how the news framed these stories, you conclude there is not so much a "Quote unquote crisis of migration, but rather a crisis of responsibility." Um, so, can you talk a little bit more about that? Of how you you come to this, this sh- to theorize the shift um, and think about this crisis of responsibility, and what does this conclusion tell us about the sort of changes that are needed to think about how media talks about uh, migration and migrants themselves?
1: Um, yes, yes, maybe I can take uh, this question to kind of start with the question of responsibility. And then perhaps, you know, later, we can unfold the question of what we call the, uh, you know, the crisis as an imaginary, right, as a kind of keyword uh, that organizes uh, all sorts of discourses uh, around migration and what we should be doing about it. But To start with responsibility, I mean, the question of responsibility was on everybody's lips at that time, you know, during the 2015 migration event. Um, And perhaps more generally, we can say that the ethical way of speaking about migrants in liberal discourse is to evoke the idea of responsibility, the norm of responsibility. Uh, in a way, we need to be responsible, act on, you know, on their predicament and be hospitable or, you know, another sense of responsibility, close our borders and, and show that sense of responsibility uh, to, uh, as security to our own people. Um, So, the idea of responsibility as such became our starting point uh, in uh, one of our our analyses of the border. But instead of taking it for granted, we kind of turned this norm on its head and we asked instead, what exactly does responsibility in the context of this particular event mean and how is responsibility enacted in European uh, public discourse and specifically um in uh, in the images that um, European news were presenting to us on a daily basis during the time frame of the research so we analyzed in total 80 front page images from uh, newspapers of five European countries in the three moments that I presented earlier early on in the um, in the event uh, in September during the moment of ecstatic humanitarianism and again in November uh, when uh, migrants turned from a humanitarian victim to a threat. And in this analysis, we focused on how migrants appear on the photographs and who appears to feel for them or act on them or with them uh, in... um, in in those those, um, uh, images. So our assumption in the analysis was that while responsibility, you know, it's an abstraction, and so it is in principle, unrepresentable. Um, What can be represented in photographs is model actions, so to speak, um, that are themselves informed by dominant norms of what is the right thing to do in that particular photographic scene. So um, within that framework, we identified five such norms of responsibility: responsibility to monitor the news, right to just see, you know, how the camps work and how uh, migrants are being uh, given food or are being taken care of, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so responsibility to monitor their situation. Uh, responsibility to feel for their suffering when we see, for instance, children crying or mothers trying to protect their children and, um, and keep them safe, to be reflexive about their predicament, uh, especially through kind of um, more um, um, social media imageries uh, reflecting on uh, the predicament of the young boy who died on the shore, being drowned without help. Um, responsibility to protest in in uh, in the migrants name uh, when for instance major um, mobilizations took place in urban centers across europe in the name of protecting the migrants and uh, and being hospitable to them or again and that was another form of responsibility in quotation marks that was being put forward imagery that prioritized our security barbed wire uh, or Frontex um, personnel at the border on the Greek islands, etc., etc. So these are all well known enactments, if you like, of civic responsibility. Uh, what Roger Silverstone, in his book Median Morality, calls formal um, responsibility. That is uh, the responsibility that is expected of us to perform as citizens of. Uh, liberal democracies in in, in 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 the West, but these practices at the same time systematically represent migrants as what I called earlier, you know, cardboard figures, um, generic figures. They are victims or they are threats. Uh, they are objects of our reflections, so implicitly also victims or causes of. Uh, they are the causes of our activism. Uh, or perhaps the object from which we need to be protected from such threats. Uh, but again, they are not represented as human in the way that we are human, as figures of unique individuality. Now, pertinent here is, I think, uh, one of my favourite quotes in the book from Hannah Arendt's uh, The Human Condition, where she says that um, who somebody is or was uh, we can know only by knowing the story of which they are themselves a hero of. Um, and this is exactly what is missing from our news discourse. You know um, This quality of migrants being the heroes of their own stories. Uh, in other words, what is missing is that quality of narratability that can lead to an alternative form of responsibility. Not formal, this is what we need to do, but substantive responsibility. Now, for Silverstone, substantive responsibility is the responsibility for the condition of the other, which we take to mean responsibility that prioritizes understanding the other in their own terms and caring for their predicament while treating them as human. So... With this comes, you know, our whole critique as I presented it earlier, where is the complexity, where is the depth, how can we find spaces of, um, um, you know, identification, uh, you know, with our emotions, feelings, aspirations, beliefs. Um, And so part of the kind of um, normative imperative of our own analysis is, can we start exploring ways of representing migrants that can approximate more substantive forms of responsibility rather than simply former forms of responsibility?
0: Right, right. And I think that's that's something that I think it sounds like, I, I really appreciated how you summarized all the sort of uh, political philosophy undergirding this question uh, because it is, as, as you mentioned, it's sort of an abstract um, concept, the responsibility and how do you deal with it when thinking about the sort of media objects themselves and bringing those uh, uh, together, right? Um, in a somewhat different uh, fashion, the thinking about the objects themselves that you're analyzing or the, the media um, texts themselves, I think um, as you've been pointing out, you're interested both in the digital border as uh, a site for securitization and uh, all of these control practices, but also as instances of resistance, uh, as sort of the cracks in the system where uh, migrants are able to uh, be the protagonists of their own story or um, in some way express their voice. Um, and you, you analyze a number of moments of these uh, resistance. Um, the sort of refugee radio network, for example. Um, and a lot of these, I was, I guess, surprised, but also somewhat um, saddened to hear, then have disappeared since you've done the research um, up until now. So in perhaps in un, un, not unknowingly, um, your book is doing the sort of important work of, of archiving what was once, right? So keeping a record of these practices that may not be, Um, existing in the way that they are now. Um, But I guess the question is, how do we contend, um, let's say, politically with these different temporalities, right? These sort of moments of resistance that you you trace may not be there or may not be there in the same ways, Um, whereas the sort of state-based bordering regimes are still very much continue to be there, right? They're sort of a lot more permanent in that sense. So how do we contend with these Distinctions.
2: Hmm. Um, I, I think uh, this is a very important and, of course, very challenging uh, question. Um, you rightly said that uh, what very often happens with structures of resistance is that they are characterized by ephemerality and fragility. So, we have that ephemerality and fragility of structures of resistance, uh, which uh, comes in striking contrast, of course, with the growing and intrusive presence of the state-driven border, which seems to be growing rather than becoming diminished. Um, And this, of course, uh, in itself, this is a striking reality that reflects the unequal conditions that the border itself generates. But of course, this condition does not erase the importance of resistance, but I think it calls on us to understand more of its complexity and what does it mean. So I think there are at least two things that we have to keep in mind when we think about the borders, power and resistance. First of all, uh, uh, these conditions are a reminder that we have to understand that even though the border cannot fully contain people and ideas, And this becomes apparent, of course, in these different examples of resistance we also refer to in the book. It it does indeed represent a growing structure of power of enormous implications, of enormous implications, especially because it involves not just the state anymore, but it involves big tech, and the corporate sector, the media, but also citizens themselves or ourselves who we are expected to often act as border guards in our everyday life by checking constantly on our neighbors and their rights to be among us and their rights to, uh, to have access to, um, to the resources we do. So within this regime of power, structures of resistance uh, resistance can appear minuscule and they might appear as meaningless, especially, as you said, because of their ephemerality. Structures of resistance, especially those directly challenging the border, of course, as we know and as we have observed, by offering, especially if they offer solidarity instead of detention, if they develop hacking uh, mechanism uh, to challenge structures of uh, surveillance and identification of migrant lives, they're not only underfunded and marginal, but they can be even prosecuted, as we have seen that in many occasions in our studies. For example, the, uh, the Athenian uh, anarchy squads, which uh, offered hospitality and a home, shelter to many refugees and many of the anarchist activists ended up being prosecuted because of that, or Berlin networks that protect undocumented migrants, uh, offering them legal advice or just basic access to resources that themselves became prosecuted. So there is a grim reality in uh, on the one side of what we see in relation to power and resistance. But of course, uh, saying that, I think we have to think about those moments as important in different ways, and um, even if they are short lived. So, I think the importance here is that uh, an importance that we have to think in relation to the politics of the border. And uh, they're important in three ways in relation to the politics of the border. First, I think those moments in their fragility, those uh, temporary structures remind us that the digital border control can never be fully encompassed. So they're, they're the moments of hope and, uh, and, um, and uh, regeneration of, of, of uh, possibilities of resistance. Second, and in practice, of course, at the specific moment that they exist, they do make a real difference especially to those who might be fully excluded from access to resources those being anything from access to sexual health or knowledge about their legal rights and finally they're important because they're important because they project alternative imaginaries of how to be human at times of crisis because they project solidarity against hostility they project collaboration against exclusion so an unequal struggle but of course not one that is fully lost and one that should make us feel in despair.
0: Yeah, that's some, that's, that's a great way of putting it. Um, I, I want to continue with this question of temporality um, in a different way, going back to the question about the um, crisis and the imaginary of crisis. Um, so I think in your conclusion you make this really compelling case uh, for how what you call the crisis imaginary um, is shaping not only media but also like government responses to to human migration right um and you outline all the different reasons why, why we must avoid it um and so but at the same time i mean the, the sort of displacement of people is, con- is only continuing to intensify with planetary climate change uh and even more um, political turmoils around the world. So what other frameworks can be useful to sort of adequately convey the urgency of this phenomenon, but without sort of falling into the crisis imaginary, which as you point out, comes with its all sort of dehumanizing um, baggage as well, right, of not thinking about people in the move as people.
1: Yes, yes, yes. No, I mean, I, I think it's a very interesting question, actually, and one we kind of had to think through quite intensely um, as we were uh, kind of wrapping up the argument. Um, but perhaps the first thing to say here is just to kind of remind us of what the crisis imaginary refers to. Um, and just to say that um, it the imaginary... Uh, is uh, the representational framework that circumscribes how we think about and talk about the topic of migration. So the imaginary is not so much the opinions or arguments that we have or the agendas that we use to discuss migration, but the underlying assumptions and normative premises that we all share and take for granted in order to then make specific arguments about migration. So here in the UK, for instance, but I think this goes beyond um, our experience in this country, uh, people speak about migrants arriving at the borders exclusively as a problem, right? Um, As we said already several times, it's something that's a threat. It's something that needs to be stopped urgently. Now, this kind of talk presupposes an underlying framework of crisis where the priority is some notion of urgent security for us and exclusion for them. They need to be kept out. Um, so, so it is hard to imagine our media representations and public narratives otherwise, because we are all inhabiting the same crisis imaginary, you know, with the media that kind of surround us. And, um, um, and so the limits of the imaginary can easily become the limits of our imagination. And so this is what the book is trying to challenge in a fundamental way in in the last uh, chapter, because we have to imagine otherwise. Um, The more climate change intensifies and the demand for global action becomes more urgent, we must try to render alternative imaginaries more visible and to make them more acceptable as narratives in public. An imaginary of the Anthropocene, for instance, would link migration to um, inevitable developments on the on the climate front. And you know uh, now, you know the um, COP event taking place um, in Egypt. I think that becomes even more uh, topical. Um, and so uh, th- that kind of alternative imaginary um, could make us both understand better why people migrate and. Um, maybe motivate us to act together, to change the trajectory of uh, uh, climate change and make sure people are safer on the planet um, as well as the planet is safer uh, with us, right? So that could be another imaginary, um, another normative premise upon which we can start building arguments about many things, including uh, in a big way, uh, migration. But if we have time, I would also like to add two more specific points about how the crisis imaginary of migration can be challenged um, quite concretely in, in news narratives and journalism. And the first is that the news could use more individualized stories, right, that humanize migrants um, in ways that are not happening right now. So um, the narrative trope of individualizing generality is well known in journalistic reporting already. And we see it in other kinds of stories. Uh, we've seen it uh, here in Europe. We see it in Ukraine, for instance, uh, where migrants from Ukraine are invited to talk about their personal ordeals, right? And to talk about their lives before migration, and to talk about their aspirations about the lives that they want to build, wherever they end up in the continent. So, and we are invited to listen to that, uh, to listen to those narrations of stories. Um, So uh, Ukrainian migrants, in a way, have more narratability to kind of use the vocabulary um, that I, I used earlier. Um, We we see it uh, much more often than than we see it uh, uh, about refugees coming, for instance, from Syria or other parts of the Middle East. And the second point I wanted to say about changing imaginaries is that perhaps we should look beyond the news as well for uh, new genres of humanization. For instance, the cinema, films, documentaries, podcasts, art, are some only of the narrative formats that can open up space for uh, narratability, for the voices of of migration. And I think particularly art as well um, has already presented us with a a lot of possibilities to grasp that experience in that condition um, as part of of humanity, rather than as an experience of uh, uh, radical otherness, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I think the the to your last point, the contrasting of we that the media and I guess in this case news media and journalism does have strategies for um, countering this crisis imaginary right. It's just they're not being equally applied to different kinds of uh, migration events. Um, those those differences are still very much um, themselves perpetuating the same exclusions in terms of like. Um, national origin and race and so forth. So, another aspect that you bring up in the conclusion that I think is um, was powerful in the the years that you're studying, and I think it's only become even more um, stark, is that you you end by by making sort of a, a very strong statement um, to say that, and here I'm quoting from your book that if Europe and the West at large, wishes to live up to its own self-description as a liberal continent supporting human rights, then it should work to collectively take responsibility for the migrants reaching its shores, um, is is what you um, sort of uh, state. But in reading this in, I guess in 2022, my my question becomes like, what if it doesn't, right? What if they, the both Europe and other places in the global north are less and less buying into the self-description or at least there are groups within that polity that is less buying into that self-description? Um, how do we bring in the the sort of the work that you're doing here and thinking about the digital border and just so much of both symbolic and territorial and, um, and bring it up against the sort of rising um, of other imaginaries of sort of xenophobic, deglobalizing imaginaries that are occurring in various places in Europe and various places in the U.S., for example. Um, how do you see that the work, this work, contributing to or helping us make sense of this new moment, um, or these other um, these other movements, let's say?
2: Yeah, uh, yes, I can start. I mean, I, I, again, this is a hugely important but very difficult question, of course. Um, um, I, I, and I think the response that we can give uh, builds also in the response that Lily gave already in relation to the imaginary. Um, So uh, the book, The Digital Border, um, uh, we feel that is hopefully an intellectual project, but also hopefully it offers an ethical political provocation to address precisely the questions that you just uh, raised. So the statement that you quoted that we make in the book about Europe, and of course this expands across the West, is indeed that precise provocation, calling those on power to take responsibility. But what does this call mean and what does responsibility mean here? We mean that the responsibility of the West is not only towards those coming from elsewhere, and often, what happens with progressive migration politics and progressive uh, forces uh, within the politics of the West is that they focus on migration as always an external problem uh, for the West, a problem for the other that we observe and we have to do something because we have been presented to, to it from the outside. So what through the book we want to highlight and again this is an intellectual exercise, but also um, uh, um, an exercise that has political implication implications in shifting the narrative, in shifting the dominant imaginaries, is the urgent urgent and deep need for the West to acknowledge how uh, how it is now and how it for a long time it has been part of shaping this global order or rather this global disorder? This means that that citizens and also progressive uh, forces have to make a, a stronger claim of how the West has to take responsibility for conditions of instability causing people's uprooting, as more often than not. These conditions are tied to histories of colonialism, imperialism, and of course its current manifestations, which We also see in relation to our field, for example, with the extraction of valuable digital technological resources from countries of the global north, as well as acknowledging those implications of the West in geopolitical struggles that take place around the world. So this is about um, coming back to the level and to the content of the political conversations that we are having in the public spheres of the West. And of course, the the current moment is a very critical moment to to deal with these challenges. And Lily mentioned already the Ukrainian war. And we wrote the book before the the, the Ukrainian war and the consequent mass exodus from the country of almost 8 million people. But we can see how the case of Ukrainian refugees um, and how the West welcomes them against other kinds of refugees And that how this uh, appears to be an exception. Uh, But the exception should be a moment of reflection and political realization of responsibility. Because what we see now is that the stories of these refugees are seen not just as their stories of uprooting, but also as our story of humanity. We see how there are structures of solidarity that appear as collective responsibility that build on uh, presumed uh, values of the West. And how we need to take this moment to use that exception to actually emphasize that human rights, solidarity, recognition of, of the humans are values that cannot be applied as an exception and only to the familiar and the proximate, but there are values that need to be applied with responsibility that has to always have a a global outlook and a a realization that this is the world that we all occupy together. But this is a world also where some have more responsibility about its disorder than others.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: I mean I could say just a little bit on on the far right because you mentioned I think the um, you know the, the current moment and the intensification of, of the kind of the xenophobic rhetoric and I, I all, all I wanted to say is that I completely agree that the most important challenge we are facing facing today is, is, is the challenge of the, of the far right. Um, and the um, experience of, um, of migration uh, in Europe is a very um, kind of um, obvious example where we can see uh, far-right xenophobic uh, politics being applied to um, a vulnerable group um, and applied in a way that is uh, most cruel. Right. And, you know, in kind of in a most um, intense form of new necropolitical practices and dehumanizing uh, rhetorics. Um, and, and I just wanted to refer to, you know, to the UK and say that, you know, Brexit took place under the banner of we are at breaking point in relation to migration. Um, when the UK has been quite effective, actually, in keeping people out um, and uh, it received a minimal number of refugees in the 2015 event, the smallest number than any other EU country at the time. The EU was also in the the UK was also in the EU, but since then and in the past six years, we are seeing sustained waves of anti-migration campaigning, um, first against Eastern Europeans and against all European citizens as queue jumpers uh, around the Brexit period. Uh, then a bit later, the Windrush generation scandal broke out, where hundreds of Commonwealth uh, citizens were found to have suddenly been deported from the UK after spending uh, some of them, you know, half a century working and living here and building families. Mm-hmm. Then again, last year, it was um, uh, non Europeans uh, that uh, the Home Office scheme um, tried to fly back to Rwanda as a safe country. Um, And these days it is Albanian citizens arriving from France in small dinghies that are now being characterized as invaders of this country. And I I just wanted to say that with the far right, we are observing the ongoing and systematic work of symbolic bordering as a very specific and targeted political project. Um, And in the context of uh, the far right's political failure, to keep particularly this country going and to support its most vulnerable or offer a better future, far-right politicians weaponize the crisis imaginary in full force. Um, so we need to keep calling out this rhetoric for what it does, um, identifying migrants as the enemy or the scapegoat and um, turning um, against one, one vulnerable community against another Uh, so to speak, local communities of vulnerable people against migrants. So um, this divide and rule is in order for the far right to continue with their cruel politics that hit back precisely upon those vulnerable communities. They endanger migrants further and they impoverish local communities even more. And I think part of what we do in the digital border is basically to show that this, this is... Uh, what it is. And um, this kind of critique is part of what the digital border helps us think through, I think, and articulate um, um, uh, in some ways, right, in, in a clear way.
0: Yeah, yes, for sure. Um, I guess one way we can um, think or move, start thinking towards um, the future um is I guess, what are some areas after sort of concluding this project and thinking about its continued relevance, even with these newer events that you may have not touched in the book, but that are still very much um, imbricated in in the same sort of dynamics. What are some um, areas that you wish to explore um, or you think there are still left to explore within this this broader um, field or project?
2: um i i could start with uh, some of the issues um, um, i have been observing and learning also from the experience in uh, researching the book um and it's in contribution um, I think uh, one thing that is very important to do as uh, as academics uh, more generally I think is to build on developing uh, transnational comparative perspectives um, on the digital border um, because through our own research we found striking similarities between the um, the territorial, and the symbolic border across different parts of the world. Um, But of course, uh, the particular manifestations of the border in different parts of the world Um, and the forms of resistance, I I think, need more systematic research. And again, we need to have that understanding transnationally about how the digital border is constituted, um, both in terms of conceptually understanding the border and uh, its implications, but also to think about the ethical political implications um, uh, we discussed before. Uh, And uh, within those transnational uh, frameworks or imaginaries, I think, of thinking about why doing this kind of research and why does it matter, we need to also um, be reflexive on the... uh, on the rearticulations of the border, especially as these take place um, around the different uh, uses of digital technologies. For example, we see more and more the externalization of Western borders. For example, the European Union now uses technologies of border control in sub-Saharan Africa. And how that flexibility that technologies allow have huge implications about the ways that we understand the relationships between the global north and the global south, but also those technologized regimes of dependencies that these kind of processes um, generate. And And again, a scholarly community, I think we have to talk to each other about this work that very often we do. Uh, separately and to think together and to learn together from it.
1: Yeah, my, my, my own work takes um, um it- takes off from the digital border and kind of falls back into the broader domain of my interests in mediated uh, suffering and, and, and claims to victimhood and claims to pain in, in, in Western public spheres. So uh, my current work is, um, is entitled um, uh, Wronged, with an exclamation mark, The Politics of Victimhood. So this uh, idea of victimhood is a topic that many people have written about. But my own specific entry point is the political work that victimhood does today to create sufferers that are worthy and sufferers that are unworthy in our in Western societies, in the Anglo-American societies in particular. And in a way, the UK example I just gave, in terms of the waves of symbolic bordering, you know, um, is a good example in this respect because, you know, migrants are now. Um, not seen as victims and, and, you know, relatively protected, relatively prosperous Western citizens um, are seen as the victims of migration, so to speak. So my own critique is directed primarily towards these far-right messages, really, uh, particularly of authoritarian populists who strive to gain power precisely through competitions about who suffers the most. And because they tend to have the loudest voices, in mainstream media, but uh, often in mainstream media, and, but certainly on social media, they do. Uh, they also tend to win this competition and then they inflict even more suffering on the most vulnerable in society. So my message in the book, is, in this particular uh, book project, is, is dual. Firstly, we need to be suspicious of victimhood because victimhood does not only create cultures of compassion, but also cultures of cruelty. And secondly, questions of vulnerability and of suffering are essentially questions of injustice. And what we need is not competitions around who suffers the most, but social movements that demand structural change, both economic and and political.
0: Great. Um, Those sound like really important avenues to continue this, uh, this work. So thank you both, uh, Professor Georgiou and uh, Kularaki, for joining us today, uh, for all your thoughtful answers, and for this um, this project and what I think will be the the continuing uh, importance and effects that it'll have. Um, and look forward to to hearing more about where this your this work is going. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, thank you, awesome. thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to our Global Media and Communication podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out through our email, cargcasc.upen.edu, or follow us on Twitter.
1: Until next time.